Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Please join me in welcoming Colm Tobin and Patrick McCabe. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I feel a bit like paraphrasing from Lady Bracknell. To have one great Irish writer would seem to be fortunate. To have two great Irish writers would appear to be sheer greed. Well, I don't care what Lady Bracknell would have said. I think it's an absolutely fantastic occasion to have these two distinguished men of Irish letters with us tonight. They come to us with their new books, Brooklyn and the Holy City, and I've been racking my brains all afternoon trying to think of anything that they have in common, and I'm afraid I've given up entirely. They're both extremely different animals indeed, but equally exciting, and it just reminds me of all the things that the novel can do, that sort of the interplay of character and language and narrative and atmosphere. And there are so many things that you can do with it, with that particular mixture. So anyway, we've got lots to get through, so I won't miss any more time and I shall ask Holm to do a reading from Brooklyn. Thank you very much. Um, it's 1951, and Eilish Lacey is traveling from Liverpool um, to America. She's never been out of Ireland before, and she's from Enniscorthy, and she's sharing a cabin with an English woman called Georgina, who she's never met before. And there are those sort of cabins where in, uh, two cabins share a bathroom, so that when you are using the bathroom, you lock their door. And then it's good manners to suggest that you, when you're not using it, you open their door so they can use it. Anyway, um, so um, in the cabin, when she went to brush her teeth and wash her face before going to bed, she discovered that the people on the other side had locked the door. She believed they must be using the bathroom and stood waiting for them to finish and then unlock the door. She listened but heard no sound except the engine, which she thought loud enough to muffle any bathroom noise. After a while, she went into the corridor and spent time outside the door of the adjoining room but could hear nothing. She wondered if the people in there had gone to sleep and waited in the corridor, hoping that Georgina would come. Georgina, she thought, would, would know what to do. After a while, she knocked gently on the door and, and, and on receiving no reply, banged harder with her knuckles in case they could not hear her. Still, there was no reply. Since the liner was full and since there was no one in the dining room, which was by now surely closed, she presumed that all the passengers were in their cabins. In her agitation and worry, she suddenly realized that not only did she need to brush her teeth and wash her face, but she needed to empty her bladder and her bowels as well, and do so quickly, almost urgently. She went into her own cabin again and tried the door of the bathroom, but it was still locked. She went back into the corridor and made her way towards the dining room, her need more and more urgent, but she could find no bathroom. Um, she, she went up two flights of stairs towards the deck, but found the door had been locked. She walked down a number of corridors, checking at the end of each one for a bathroom or a toilet, but there was nothing except the sound of the engines and the beginning of a movement as the liner lunged forward, which made it necessary for her to hold the rails carefully. And she went back down the stairs so she could keep her balance. She was desperate now and did not think she could manage much longer without finding a toilet. She had noticed earlier that towards each end of her own corridor there was a small alcove where a bucket and some mops and brushes were kept. She realized that since she'd met no one, then if she were lucky, no one would see her now as she went to the alcove on the right. She was glad when she saw that there was already some water in the bottom of the bucket. 
She moved fast, trying to relieve herself as quickly as she could, hoping, keeping inside the alcove so that even if someone came along the corridor, they might not spot her unless they had to pass. She used a soft mop to wipe herself when she'd finished and then tiptoed back to the cabin, hoping that Georgina would come and know how to wake their neighbors and make them unlock the bathroom door. She, she would not, it struck her, be able to complain about this to the ship's authorities <laughs> in case they associated her with what they would, she was sure, discover in the bucket the following morning. She went into her berth and changed into her nightdress and turned off the light before climbing to the top bunk. Soon she fell asleep. She did not know for how long she slept, but when she woke, she found herself covered in sweat. It soon became clear to her what was wrong. She was going to vomit. In the darkness, she almost tumbled from the bunk and could not stop herself throwing up parts of the, her evening meal as she tried to keep her balance while searching for the cabin light. As she found it, she moved past Georgina's trunk towards the door, and as soon as she reached the corridor, she began to vomit copiously. She got down on her knees. It was the only way she could manage since the ship was swaying so much. She realized that she should try to vomit everything up as quickly as possible before she was discovered by one of her fellow passengers or by the ship's authorities, but each time she stood up thinking she had finished, the nausea returned. She went back to the cabin, longing to cover herself with blankets on the top bunk, hoping that no one would realize that she was the one who had made the mess in the corridor. The urge to be sick became even more intense than before, for forcing her to get down on her hands and knees and vomit a thick liquid with a vile taste that made her shudder with revulsion when she lifted her head. And so there's loads more there. You can buy the book and there's loads more <laughs> of that. Anyway, she goes to sleep and she was woken by a soft hand on her forehead. She knew exactly where she was when she opened her eyes. Oh, the poor little pet, Georgina said. They, they wouldn't open the bathroom door, Eilish said. She made her voice sound as weak as she could. The bastards. Georgina said, they do that every time, some of them. Whoever gets in first locks the door. Watch me dealing with them. Eilish sat up and slowly made her way down the ladder. Um, the smell of vomit was dreadful. Georgina had taken a nail file from her handbag and was already busy working at the lock on the bathroom door. She opened it without too much difficulty. Eilish followed her into the bathroom, where the passengers in the other berth had left their toilet things. Now we have to block their door because tonight is going to be even worse, Georgina said. Eilish saw that the lock was a simple metal bar that could easily be lifted by a nail file. There's only one solution, Georgina said. If I put my trunk in here, we won't be able to close the door. We'll have to sit sideways on the toilet, but they won't have a chance of getting in. <laughs> you poor pet. She looked at Eilish again with sympathy. She was wearing makeup and seemed untouched by the ravages of the night. What did you have for dinner? Georgina asked as she set about moving the trunk into the bathroom. I, I, I think it was mutton and peas, plenty of peas. Uh, how, and how do you feel? I, I've, I've never felt worse. Did, did, did I leave a big mess in the corridor? Yes, but the whole ship's a mess. Even first class is a mess. They'll start the cleaning there. It'll be hours before they make it down here. Why did you eat such a big dinner? I, I didn't know. Did you not hear them saying it when we were coming on board? It's the worst storm in years. It's always bad, especially down here. But this one is terrible. Just drink water. Nothing else. No solids. It will do wonders for your figure. I, I'm, I'm sorry about the smell. 
Uh, they'll come and clean it up. We'll move the trunk again when we hear them coming. We'll put it back when they go. I got spotted in first class, and I've been warned to stay down here until we dock or be arrested on the other side. So I'm afraid you've got company. And darling, when I vomit, you'll know all about it. And that's all's going to happen for the next day or so. Vomiting, plenty of it. And then I'm told we'll be in calm waters. I feel terrible, Alice said. It's called seasickness, and it turns you green. Do I look terrible? Oh, yes. And so does every person on this boat. As she spoke, a loud knocking came from the other cabin. Georgina went into the bathroom. Fuck off, she shouted. Can you hear me? Good. Now, fuck off. Eilish stood behind her in her nightdress and her bare feet. She was laughing. I need to go to the toilet now, she said. I, I, I hope you don't mind. And I'm just going to read one other little bit where um, she gets a job in Brooklyn. She's working um, 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 in a department store. And it comes to Christmas. And the local priest asks her if she'll help out um, on Christmas Day where all the Irish men who've been working for years in um, the New York area have to go somewhere for Christmas and they're fed Christmas dinner. And she, um, she, she serves them Christmas dinner with two women who are called the Miss Murphys, and they're from Arklow. Father, I mean, I, I have nothing against Arklow. I, don't know if, I hope there's no one here from Arklow, though, because Father Murphy, or, or Father Flood says that they're from Arklow, although we won't hold that against them. And, and I, I don't know why I put that in, but I just put it in. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that's happened in the day is that a man has come in wearing a cap, and for a second, Eilish thought this man was her father. Her father's been dead for a few years, but for one second, she's sure it's, it's her father and then realizes it isn't, and then he's talking Irish, and um, she, serves him his, um, she serves him his dinner, anyway. So at the end of the, this is the very end of Christmas Day, 1951, in a parish hall in Brooklyn. After a while, Eilish noticed that the two, two men had taken out fiddles, and a, another man a small accordion. They'd found a corner and were playing as a few others stood around and listened. Father Flood was moving about the hall, he's the priest in charge, with a notebook now, writing down names and addresses and nodding as old men spoke to him. After a while, he clapped his hands and called for silence, but it took a few minutes before he could get everyone's attention. I don't want to interrupt the proceedings, he said, but we'd like to thank a nice girl from Enniscorthy and two nice women from Arkla for their hard day's work. There was a round of applause. And as a way of thanking them, there's one great singer in this hall and we're delighted to see him this year again. He pointed to the man whom Eilish had mistaken for her father. He was sitting away from Eilish and Father Flood, but he stood up when his name was called and walked quietly towards them. He stood with his back to the wall so that everyone could see him. That man, Miss Murphy whispered to Eilish, has made LPs. <laughs> when Eilish looked up, the man was signaling to her. He wanted her, it seemed, to come and stand with him. It struck her for a second that he might want her to sing, so she shook her head, but he kept beckoning, and people began to turn and look at her. She felt she had no choice but to leave her seat and approach him. She could not think why he wanted her. As she came close, she saw how bad his teeth were. He did not greet her or acknowledge her arrival, but closed his eyes and reached his hand towards hers and held it. The skin on the palm of his hand was soft. He gripped her hand tightly and began to move it in a faint, circular motion as he started to sing. His voice was loud and strong and nasal. The Irish he sang in, she thought, must be Connemara Irish, 
because she remembered one teacher from Galway in the Mercy Convent who had that accent. We pronounced each word carefully and slowly, building up a wildness, a ferocity in the way he treated the melody. It was only when he came to the chorus, however, that she understood the words, Ma Vientuliama Story Macri. And he glanced at her proudly, almost possessively, as he sang these lines. All the people in the hall watched him silently. There were five or six verses. He sang the words out with pure innocence and charm, so that at times when he closed his eyes, leaning his large frame against the wall, he did not seem like an old man at all. The strength of his voice and the confidence of his performance had taken over. And then each time he came to the chorus, he looked at her, letting the melody become sweeter by slowing down the pace, putting his head down then, managing to suggest even more that he had not merely learnt the song, but that he meant it. Alice knew how sorry this man was going to be and how sorry she would be when the song had ended. When the last chorus had to be sung and the singer would have to bow to the crowd and go back to his place and give way to another singer as Eilish too went back and sat in her chair. When most of the men had left and several who remained seemed to be very drunk, Father Flood told Eilish that she could go if she wanted and he would ask the Miss Murphys to accompany her to Mrs. Keogh's boarding house. Eilish said no, she was used to walking home alone and it would in any case, she said, be a quiet night. She shook hands with the two Miss Murphys and with Father Flood and wished each of them a happy Christmas before she set out through the dark, empty streets of Brooklyn. She would, she thought, go straight to her room and avoid the kitchen. She wanted to lie on the bed and go over everything that had happened before falling asleep. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, now could I call upon Patrick to do the same. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's interesting the moderator says that Colm and I have nothing in common. In fact, we have everything in common because we come from towns that are probably the same size since in the south of Ireland. But uh, we, we do seem to approach t things differently in a way. Well, I don't know, it's a matter of style, I suppose. But every time I write a book, I pick up magazines to review a different book. And I don't know why this keeps happening. And I keep trying to get into the mainstream and I'm pushed out onto some kind of periphery or what might be perceived as cult writing or something. Because I wrote this book, you know, and it was reviewed as if it were the memoir of a gentle old man looking back in his life in Ireland. And really, just by way of introduction, I should say, it was really what this book, The Holy City, is, as far as I was concerned, was an impishly serious parody, the, mem the memoir of an aging necrophiliac who desires a black youth and is in love with a brazen Protestant woman called Dolly Mixtures. But none of this was mentioned, which is beyond me. So maybe I need to go to some kind of an institute for a debriefing, or somebody does. This is called The Mysteries of Protestants. They're set in a psychiatric hospital. The light on the terrace was beginning to fail, but the visitor and Dr. Mukti were still out front. When I looked again, though, they had disappeared around the side of the building and followed them. They took a left turn past the prefab, indicating they intended to avail of themselves of the available shortcut past the car park and then in through the kitchens. 
There was an open slatted door on rollers at the side of the building and through it came wafting the stultifying smell of pulped, boiling cauliflower. The psychiatrist climbed up onto the concrete ledge and assisted his visitor, the two of them laughing as he climbed up and was hauled inside. I craned my neck but couldn't properly make out what they were saying. There were some sacks of potatoes stacked up near the boiler with two huge metal bins stuffed to the brim with soggy broken eggs, potato skins and other damp refuse. I slipped inside and didn't make a sound, crouching down out of sight behind the sacks. The two men had paused and were chatting amicably to the kitchen porter. Clouds of steam were rising in great big warm puffs from an assortment of gleaming cooking vessels arranged on the hob, obscuring the clergyman's face as he good-humouredly tilted backwards, rocking back and forth, nodding away there on his heels. Whatever Dr. Mukti was saying to him was clearly amusing. Perhaps he was telling him about his clever little plan how he had decided to take over my case himself and was great, making great progress, getting all the information he could out of me about the Nigerian boy, Marcus Otoyo. Dr. Mukti was all ears now, leaning forward, hanging on his visitor's every word. The puffs of steam dissipated, at long last providing me with a much clearer view. The clergyman had turned around, and I could see him now, plainly, in his charcoal grey suit. Poor old Dr. Mukti, I thought. He had assumed I was harbouring some grudge towards the Catholic Church, and perhaps that was what prompted me, confidingly providing my motivation, which was utter nonsense, of course. At long last, they concluded their conversation and were preparing to say goodbye. Dr. Mukti was waving as his visitor smiled and turned on his heel. Some chips were boiling in a tank, sunk deep in oil with the handle of a wire basket protruding over the edge. It was convenient for me that the visitor's departure had been temporarily suspended. What with the psychiatrist somehow having caught his foot in the spars of a pallet as his companion patiently and bemusedly assisted him. They were much too preoccupied with this to notice anything when I finally emerged from my place of concealment and walked right up to them, swinging the wire basket in a wide arc, bringing it forward, even if I say so myself, in an extremely precise, almost perfectly judged movement. But unfortunately, missing both Dr. Mukti and his companion completely, with the result that one of the kitchen maids managed to skid on the discharged liquid, falling forward awkwardly, and somehow in the process managed to knock over a vat of boiling water, just as the so-called priest was trying to manoeuvre himself backwards. The scream that followed, it really was appalling. The whole episode turned out to be a complete disaster. I heard later that the poor man had sustained horrendous burns. As they led me away down the corridor to the white room, who should I see only my former custodian, Dr. Pandit, passing by the window, 
breezing along in her Birkenstocks with her folder. This should be called the night of the night dresses. Because Colm has just read about one, and now I'm going to read about one. <laughs> it was the following Sunday that Canon Burgess delivered his sermon on the subject of night dresses and their potential evils. <laughs> it had been problematic, presumably, for him to make it, with a clergyman hardly likely to have been particularly well informed about such a subject which had only been broached at all on account of the Dreamland lingerie brand, a selection of which had just gone into display in the window of the local Green Shield stamp showroom. <laughs> For two books of stamps, the sign read, any go-ahead lady in Collie Moore, who so wished could find herself the proud owner of the fabulous Dreamland nighty, a two-tier shorty with tiny lace cap sleeves and frilled fronts. The clergyman insisted to his congregation that he had privately been promised that the offending items would be removed without delay from the front of the window. This was what he had been discreetly assured of. But much to his regret, this sadly had not happened. Indeed, and much to the astonishment of the citizens of the town of Cullymore, in the aftermath of the homily, exactly the opposite proved to be the case. The original sign in the window had been removed all right, but now in its place, in italicized letters of the gaudiest frosted pink, was the announcement that Dreamland Foundations, in association with Green Shield Stamps, had agreed to sponsor the Cullymore Summer Lingerie Extravaganza to be held in the Cullymore Arms Hotel later that very week. In the wake of this alarming development, yet another meeting was called in the urban council chambers, and this time the aforementioned irate member had stormed out in a blind rage. It was the first time anyone could recall this actually happening. Certainly, since any elected representative had been heard to utter the expletive fuck in the chambers. But on this occasion, there was no enthusiasm for conflict, even debate. Perhaps the word lingerie was perceived as being too essentially intimate in nature, encroaching impudently as it did on the esoteric, vaporous privacy of what they perceived to be the sacred world of women, breaching the boundaries of their innate holiness. And so, at the risk of giving the unfortunate councillor a stroke, the subject was subtly but quite firmly dropped. There were all sorts of rumours circulating about Dolly Mixtures, the Protestant lady who had just come to visit the town. That she was definitely a Protestant, everyone knew. There were intimations of her having been separated <laughs> from her husband in England and that she had come to Collymore to stay with her equally husbandless friend, Marcus Otoyo's mother. But no one individual was sufficiently informed to vouch for the veracity of any of this. The suspicion then surfaced that she might be divorced, which would have been unheard of in Collymore at the time. This came to represent another mystery, something that they did 
meaning the Protestants and the English with impunity. Like reading the news of the world paper, which not insignificantly was perused weekly by Dolly from cover to cover. Just as soon as she had finished singing her hymns in the lane, Yes, there she would sit, turning its dubious pages, its shadowy photos depicting the exploits of runaway wives, not to mention various goings-on in the suburbs, and government officials indicted for gross misconduct. What's gross mis misconduct, Dolly? Marcus had inquired one particular Sabbath morning. I was informed which had amused her no end, she said. He really is the most innocent youth. Destined, I think, sometimes for the priesthood, she said. Such a loss. He's so sweet and innocent, you know. I made no reply. Just kind of shrugged. You know, she said, sometimes I catch him looking at me, she said at my legs, how it makes me laugh. I dismissed it. It meant nothing. Why should it? What was unusual about that, I asked myself. It did not surprise me greatly at all that Marcus Atoyo, being essentially a spiritual boy, might harbor certain affections for Dolores McCausland. He's so thoughtful it's flattering, she would say twirling a loose strand of her fine blonde hair in a kind of daze, as I recall. But if it meant anything to me, if it, if it bothered me in any way, then I did not show it. Indeed, I encouraged her to indulge in innocent adolescent excitement as I lay there beside her looking into her eyes. Such vehement passions, I would think, recalling a portrait of the artist, as I thought of us there by this swaying green ocean. Marcus and I. Being holy, he liked all kinds of hymns, she said. But being a Catholic boy, she continued, there would always be a special place in his Catholic heart for hymns that tended to be of a more vivid and evocative cast. Tunes that invoked the color of crimson, released in one's soul certain primitive emotions. The songs of that kind for which she retained a special affection she claimed included Soul of My Saviour, To Jesus' Heart All Burning, and of course, Faith of Our Fathers with its stirring lines containing blood and martyrology. Wherein a tender youth found himself done to death at the point of a sword. His last end, Marcus would sigh. His last end. and cabbage and potato peelings and all sorts of bodily excrescences. Who said fiction was all glamour? Perhaps I can, can I start with you, Con, because I was intrigued when I started to read Brooke and I wasn't quite sure which period I was at. So I was very glad that you gave the information that the heroine and her boyfriend go to the movies to see Singing in the Rain, which had just come out. So I knew we were in the early 1950s because of that. 
So, were you particularly interested in that era, or was the story you wanted to tell, did it belong in the 1950s? Um, I wanted not to put too much, pay too much attention to that, but, but, but yes, because um, I, I was born in 55, we were both born in 55, and um, I, I, for the few years beforehand, although I was not alive, um, because my mother was the oldest of the family and her sisters would come to the house all the time, and I was brought up in a house of women talking. And so nylon stockings and ladders in nylon stockings and people trying to stop ladders in nylon stockings and the whole discussion over clothes and you know, anything that was going on in the town. I, I, I learned to understand English from women like that talking so that I would have had trouble setting it in the 30s because I wouldn't have had that thing in on my ear as easily as that. And, um, but that, um, so, I, so I didn't have to put it, I didn't have to do any research um, on that sort of dialogue or those sort of preoccupations. Um, but also I didn't want to do too much research on, on Brooklyn itself, on the period itself, because I wanted to um, intensify the concentration on the psychology. So it's a portrait of a psychology rather than a, of a period. And, I, and I, I also attempted a few times to put in the date, but it was so clunky that, I mean, it just jumped out at you when you tried it. So I thought Singing in the Rain would be good. It's also clearly after the war, nylon stockings, it clearly has to be there. But I also thought maybe it just should be left there, that, that it's this sort of general period. Um, but there are a few other pointers, but, but, I, but I mean, I do take your point that it, that it isn't there in the book. No, no, quite well. I'm not, it's not a complaint. It's, it's part of uh, what intrigued me about it, yeah. for many things. What also intrigued me about how female a book it is, because uh, your heroine grows up with her mother and her elder sister. Her brothers have gone to work in England. But she goes to New York. She lives in an all-female all hostel. Males are sort of rather exotic creatures in the novel. Um, and this is because, as you say, you grew up in a house of women. and. It was, it's a woman's story you're telling. Yeah. Interesting I, for a male writer to do I, that. I'm, so I'm, I'm not sure I am a male writer. Mm. I mean, I might look like one. But <laughs> I, 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 I'm, perhaps even I don't, but <laughs> I, I don't feel like one a lot of the time. Um, but also, where I'm from, I don't know if this is very true with you, but where I'm from, women did all the talking. I mean, if there, was, if there was a visitor and she was a woman, she'd arrive and she'd have plenty of things to say and the whole town would be on her mind and, oh, you'd be delighted if you were small and you could creep into the room and listen to everything she was talking about and they'd be put out of the room eventually because of the subjects you could. But if a man came to the house, he'd be totally boring for the whole evening. He'd be talking about, you know, he, either he'd be grumpy and sitting there or he'd be talking about terrible sports matches he was at or politics and he'd be <laughs> your, himself and your father would be talking on and it'd be utterly boring. So I have no interest, I mean, while, while I am gay, you know, in that way, I have no interest in men, really. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean? I mean that, I mean that women are more, women are always more interesting, always have more to say and they're always wearing nicer clothes and better colours <laughs> and, um, and there's, generally, there's generally more going on. Um, so, you know, it didn't occur to me, really, to do anything else except just, you yes. know. Yeah. And in a way, her life is organized by other people until she kind of takes control of her own life eventually at the end of the story. Um, was that one of the themes you wanted to explore? Yeah, the way that um, I've been reading um, 
very closely a few books, and, and it's basically based on those books, uh, um, to some extent stolen from them. There's a novel by George Moore called Esther Waters, mm -hmm. which is about someone powerless um, who's under certain pressures in the city of London in the last years of the 19th century, in which things happen to her and she responds to them. People like her, but she's not assertive. And, and there was also um, Henry James's novel, Washington Square, in which Catherine Sloper really all her life has lived internally. And she hardly ever asserts herself, but then she does. And also certain figures in Jane Austen. And uh, so I, I was sort of almost riffing on those to see if I could put them into an Irish, pro Irish provincial setting. Mm. Um, and uh, so, I, yeah, I also just made her like that, where she's her, she notices everything, but she's not good in any way of representing herself to the world. She's attractive without having an idea why. She never looks in the mirror and thinks, oh, look at me. And um, she's intelligent without being obviously so. Mm. So I'm sort of playing with all those sort yes, of ambiguities. No, no, her, absolutely yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Patrick, can I turn to you? Can I say how much one of the many things I enjoyed about your novel was this wonderful recreation of the 1960s. Mm. Uh, in particular, as Bill Carter said, there's nothing so potent as cheap music, and it's full of references to the bands, the styles, the words of the time. Now, you were a lad in the 1960s. Mm. Were you a particular follower of Herman's Hermits and Lulu and Clodagh Rogers and Dave D. Dozy, Beaky Mick and Titch. Yeah, but in a way I think that's the book's weakness, actually looking back on it now. There's far too much of it. Um, to be perfectly honest, this was a, a book that was leading me to be a much bigger book. Mm -hmm. It's a spoiler-line book. I'm not disowning it or anything, but it isn't a major book for me. It's a, it's a small book. It's a kind of a... I was, trying, I was trying to find my way into a much bigger theme, and I finished that book now. It's a far better book. It's a bigger book. And, uh, <laughs> No, I'm not being flippant. Mm -hmm. I really mean that. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting little kind of bagatelle. That's what it is. Well, I was going to ask about this territory that you I've read several of your novels now, and a, maybe a generalization with which you'll disagree, but this t odd territory between the macabre and the comic, the kind of uproariously funny and the sort of spine-tinglingly sinister as oh. well. Is this... Why have you carved out this particular... Would you agree with me, first I of would, all? I would, yeah, I would, And yeah, B, yeah. why does that area interest you in particular? I think um, life is a very strange business. I think it's a dreadful business in many ways. I mean in the sense that it's, it's full of dread. That's what I mean, that, uh, that you can be most deliriously happy and something will be conspiring to undermine that just as you're doing it. It's, it's uh, possibly some kind of psychiatric issue, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> But, the, you know, ultimately, writing fiction for me is about style, and if you get something that's in accord with the way you actually perceive the world, you're probably on your way to, to style. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in memory and uh, trying to recast the world as it was and so on. What Colin was saying about the 50s, I always find that the three years before you were born seem to be kind of place... You almost hear the echoes of your, your mother, and it is particularly women in our case. I don't know why that is, really. I haven't really investigated but the muse is kind of feminine, all right, in my, in my view. And uh, it's almost to kind of find just in that place where it, some, it kind of made some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't, can't really answer it. I don't even know why I write fiction at all. But I, cu I, I couldn't really not write it. No. I mean, your, your style is intoxicating, really. For I mean, some, not for others. Well, I'm a, not for the man who, who 
obviously didn't read the book before he, read, he wrote the review that you quoted earlier on, but I mean, there are tropes in the book. There, you know, there's Stevenson, there's James Joyce, there's, as I say, 60s, there's Protestant Catholic dichotomy. There's mm. also, and it's a bit like horses on a carousel. They all keep coming round mm. at regular intervals. Mm. Abide with me, that's another, another theme. And it's full of, it's rich and it's heady and it's intoxicating. So, well, I enjoy, but you may not uh, enjoy it, but oh, I No, 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 I must say, I'm not just only going to enjoy I'm just trying to say, because mm -hmm. when I finished the book, it's a puzzle to me. Why did I particularly, I didn't know I was going to write about the notion of Catholic or Protestant identity. It's obviously mm -hmm. some kind of self-psychoanalysis. There is a bit of that going on. Mm -hmm. But uh, ultimately, mm -hmm. this book that I finished, this was a kind of, this was a, a flare that was sending me to the place that I wanted to go to, right. which ended up in 1958, probably the same time as Brooklyn, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting again, because Indeed. I would have been three years old in column. Anyway, let's have lights yeah. up and let's have a look at the audience and let's have some questions from that fine audience. Who's going to be the first? Microphone at the ready. Hands up, please. Yes, there we are. Here comes the microphone. Keep your hand up, please, ma'am, so that they... Thank you. Thank you. I listened to Brooklyn on the radio. I thought it was wonderful. I thought I'm going to get this book. Um, we came to Scotland in 1954, and I can see my life in both your books, um, especially Patrick's book about the, the Protestant Catholic thing, we came here, and your book about the ladies and the conversations in my grandmother's house and this, that and the other, that sort of thing. But I can see my life as a child in both your books, and thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. That's a comment. Anyone have a question? No, none at all. All right, well, let's go. Ah, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how important is being Irish to your way of thinking? Uh, because Ireland, I mean, I'm partly, I, my father was Irish, but I've never lived in Ireland. And I, it's an awful problem to quite know where one fits into the picture. And you're very lucky, both of you, because you are genuinely Irish. Um, are you? And I just wondered, no, I mean, what, you're talking about Brooklyn. He said he's not um, even a man. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wondered how, how being so particularly Irish is very important to the way you think and write. That's all. Yeah. Well, who's first into the... Uh, Colm, do you want to go first? Have a first you're better crack at it? Wing it. Go on, you're better um, <laughs> I think that um, any Irish writer, um, maybe any writer anywhere, um, puts a flag up over a place. And that place may be an imaginary place, and, uh, but more importantly, puts a flag up over a voice. And um, that place for me is not necessarily Ireland, but it is um, a small place in Ireland that I know uh, about two miles of the Wexford coast, one in the, uh, the town of Enniscorthy and a bit of the town of Wexford. Um, I, I've never written much about Dublin where I live. Um, I wouldn't know how to go about that. Uh, and I can hear that speech of that place, but only of that place, those streets. Um, and um, the, the, the larger question about Irish history or Irish identity, uh, they're really too large, those questions, if you're working on character. Because if you say, in what way is my character Irish, that is the least helpful thing you could ask. You, you want to ask, 
almost. And also, the universal thing is equally foolish. Oh, this character is universal. That, but it's almost as though a few streets, some shadows, some memories, a few speech patterns, and that's enough. And you can work with that. Um, but if you go into, especially questions to do with a nation, because a nation really is a construct. And it's something that doesn't really exist. I mean, I'm sorry for saying this, but we, I mean, we don't. We, I mean, I, I wish Anne Enright was here. She's a colleague of ours, and she says she's only Irish on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, um, but that. Um, but, but, but that certainly, if you're writing sentences, uh, your job, your your responsibility is to the next sentence that it somehow should link to the last one, and it should have something in it for the reader. But that if you're saying how Irish is the next sentence. Or e even if you're saying um, how the figure of a f someone like James Joyce or Samuel Beckett, how important is that for you? But I, I, I just wonder about, about you, Pat, that asking you, when I started to read, I wouldn't have gone near an Irish book. You know, it was Radio Luxembourg you, you, were, you were getting on the radio. You wouldn't listen to Radio Aaron under any circumstances. It wasn't on a lot of the time, actually. It was blank in the afternoon. Yeah, there was but, a big hole. But the novels it, yeah. I was reading were by Hemingway. And I found American fiction utterly, li utterly liberating. And I found Faulkner, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, who was a boy from a small town in Ireland, finding stuff in Sartre that meant a lot more to me. So uh, Irish books were school books. And Irish experience, that dreary Catholicism, and you know, the, the rain, and the sort of misery, and the historical <laughs> disaster uh, that is Ireland, and the misery, you know, all of that. <laughs> That, that you... Irish tourist that, border on the that, phone. <laughs> <laughs> that you found ways of handling that by finding it in Faulkner or by finding it in, in Flannery O'Connor much more than you did in, say, Frank O'Connor. And um, th that changed as time went on where, where I began to appreciate more what was on my doorstep. But I think when you're... And I think the books you read first and the music you listen to first is what really matters and what really affects then what you go on to do. Yeah, I think that the, the rain and the relentless drone of clergymen and all that stuff is absolutely accurate. But I think there were two books that kind of broke the mould there that were certainly influenced me. Well, one of them was Brendan Behan's Borstal Boy, and the other was The Ginger Man. Now, I'm not saying that they're towering works of literature or anything, but they did show, you know, after that kind of awful kind of... Uh, post-independence kind of uh, dreary landscape that we grew up in literary-wise. There, there was a sense that you didn't have to necessarily, you know, say that everything that was going to liberate you came from America and England, although ultimately the, the great strength of it was there. But th those two books were like, uh, they were like grenades going off for me, and I really loved them. And perhaps the, the, the kind of use of the demotic was very interesting for me, because I didn't quite know how you would approach literature. I never really considered that the detritus of your experience as a small town, you know, which was in many ways unremarkable on the surface, could actually, you know, you know, be the stuff of fiction. But that comes later. But at that time, when I was 16 or 17, it was, it was about rebellion because we knew that the place was dreary and horrible and uninspiring. But maybe that's any post-colonial country, I don't know. But that certainly was our inheritance up to a certain point. Both of us also had an experience, him in Clonus and me in Enniscorthy, where, um, I, was it in 1966 the Flat Kill arrived in you? That's right. And in yeah. 1967, the Flat of Ireland is, is where all the musicians come, all the traditional musicians come. But of course, in the 60s, they came with long hair and baggage. 
There were women. And sex was and se I mean, there were people having sex down by the river. No one in Scotland ever thought of that before. It has come to a sorry pass. And um, there was talk about it nudity. Has come, it has people come to a sorry pass drinking. in this little town. And I was 12. And I got permission, you know, because my father was downtown. And I, and I said that he said he, I was to come down and find him. So I stayed out all night with him. And I saw people you wouldn't believe. And people were singing ballads and shouting. Yeah. It, and uh, we've talked about this before. Mm. In this town where nothing had ever happened before. I mean, I know we had a rebellion in 1798. That was a couple of years back, um, yeah. And there were statues up to all those people. And, but when these people arrived and took over our town, and people talked about tons of bottles were found afterwards in most unlikely places. And, um, you know, do you remember all that? Could I say something about that? We, we had a little festival in Monaghan, uh, just finished it actually, but we had Brendan Boyer, who used to be the band leader of the Royal Show Band, and uh, he's from Wexford, where Colm is from. But he was an opera singer, a kind of boy soprano, and uh, I put in a special request for him to sing American Trilogy by Mickey Newbery. And he went down on both knees and sang this thing, and it's a link directly with the American South, with the American Trilogy, because it's a great Elvis number. And the hair stood on the back of my neck, because to go back to Flannery O'Connor, there was a real sense that that Gothic literature made to me when I was 17 or 18. And that's why I asked Brendan Boyer to sing it. So you had a conflation of the glamour and the glitz of the show bands, plus the literature. So if you were to say what was your most powerful, but a lot of those writers were Irish anyway, or from of Irish extraction. So that would be the landscape that would make most sense to me, would be a link between the, the bravura kind of uh, show band music and, and the, I suppose, the uh, mischief, mischievous impi impiness of the of the southern Gothic writers like Faulkner and uh, Flannery O'Connor and many other people. Well, I thank you both for a very full answer, gentlemen. Now, more questions? Well, we thought there mightn't be any more questions. That's so right, we're trying, trying to, to, <laughs> try to fill it in. Fill, fill oh, in well, I mean, yeah. I'm happy either way, really. What about you? Now, anybody got a question? Yes, there we are. Well done. And then another one there. So keep your hand up, please, so that the microphone lady knows where to go. I'd like to pass it along. Fantastic. Get to know your neighbour. Thank you. Hey, uh, thank you very much for your reading. I'm really interested. You're both um, looking back or exploring the past, and I was wondering to what extent um, contemporary Ireland, um, the whole Celtic Tiger Islands, the whole changes which have been happening, underpins or influences, triggers or generates or whatever um, this backward look, um, or yeah, in in to what extent you are engaging with a contemporary transformation. Cheers. Well, I'm engaged with it as much as I probably intend to do within the book The Holy City, because that's what I say, that the extraordinary social change that has happened in Ireland in the last 10 to 15 years is dealt with. But um, <coughs> however, that, whether that's good or bad is not really, because as I say, perhaps I was engaging with contemporary change, but my heart wasn't in it actually. And that's why I, I kind of found myself tracking this path that led me to the word gramophone. This is what Colin was saying about you know, the, 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 the sounds of, of the, the women in the 1950s. And these were the ones that triggered me as well. Now, not necessarily for women, but when I found myself in this, which was the ultimate overview of the town. I wanted to finish with it, but there's nothing else to say that it's kind of, I'm in my mid-50s now, and really, I wondered, did I have anything? And this thing, I was led to it, and it became like a, a sort of an under-milk wood thing. That's really what it is. It's like a, a large under-milk wood novel. And I felt very happy and very, but in a way that I didn't with this. I thought this was good and interesting and a, a kind of experimental. But this was like have, just putting your head on a pillow and going for a nice sleep when I had finished it. <laughs>
so to answer your question, that gave me far greater pleasure and a far greater sense of purpose working through the memory, I have to say. Um, I suppose that what I was saying earlier about just being interested in a few streets, I suppose I mean that as a dreamer or as a, as mm. a, as a novelist, I'm interested in a few mm. streets. But, but as, a, as a citizen, I'm certainly very interested in, 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 in Ireland and in making sure that Ireland becomes a better place. Mm. And, um, and I'm very you know, concerned about that at the moment. And what I saw, which really shocked me, from about 92 or 93 was, as, as, as immigrants began to come into Ireland, a lot of people in search of work, a lot of Nigerians, a lot of Polish people, a lot of Chinese. And you realised that this country, Ireland, which had sent so many people all over the world, and people had been oddly welcomed in places like the United States, but, but had sought welcome and had expected welcome where they went, um, that when suddenly people were coming to Ireland looking for work and welcome, they didn't receive um, as much welcome as I thought they should have. And we had a constitutional referendum, which I was very, very upset by, where um, we removed certain rights from people um, who were born in Ireland. And I thought, well, if, if, you know, if, if you're born in the United States, you're, you're, you're an American, and that's a very important business for other Americans, that becoming an American and how you become an American. And Canadians especially had a thing called New Canadians, just simply called anyone who came was called a New Canadian. And if you use the word New Irish, it was a sort of joke almost. And um, people were treated very badly. And so that I began to watch especially the Poles in Ireland, wanting Polish food, making Polish, um, wanting to go home for Christmas. Um, a, Polish, a little Polish newspaper, going to Polish mass. And, and I realized that there was a an immense missing home about them being in Ireland, and that they weren't noticing Ireland. They weren't, they weren't going to their holidays to the Aran Islands. They were going back to Poland any time they could. And so it came to my mind that it was something we'd forgotten about, what it might have been like for somebody to go off on her own in the 50s, out of Ireland, into a, this land of hope and glory, America, to find actually that the work was incredibly hard, it was lonely, and that it was, New York was freezing in the winter, and that there was almost no pleasure to be had from the place, and that she was just homesick. And I wanted to also go on about homesickness. Now, while I didn't want to put my anger, because I was angry, I didn't want to put the anger into the book. Yeah. I put my anger into how I voted. But yeah. um, I, I wanted, nonetheless, to deal with this um, as drama and to deal with the emotions surrounding this. The, the, in other words, the impulse for the, some of the impulse for the book was not just to tell a story. Some of the impulse for the book wa wa was to actually set up a drama where people could see something that I thought could have political results. But I had to be careful to keep the politics out of the book. There isn't a single mention of politics in the book which is, uh, makes the book in certain ways for me almost more political than if I you know, hammered on about some large political subject. But just that that business, um, our, our history, uh, you know, I'm using the word our as being Ireland, is, is affected so deeply by immigration. Um, I mean, the, um, the uncle home from England looms as large as the Flack Hill does of course. in the 60s mm. with his English accent or his wife with an English accent and the family both welcoming him and desperately wanting him to go home soon. And the sort of havoc, I, I mean it's there, in, it's there in your work as well, the sort of havoc that the returned immigrant can create. Mm -hmm. And so all of those subjects are, are actually very serious subjects now in Ireland. But so that um, while, while this isn't a book ostensibly about the Celtic Tiger years, it couldn't have been written earlier. Thank you very much indeed. Now there's another hand up there. Yep. Let's come round here. The lady in purple? No. Yes. Blue. 
And then there's one other chap over there. Um, I'm really enjoying reading Brooklyn, Colin, but I wanted to ask you about your other book, Bad Blood. Um, we were talking there about sense of identity, and it seemed to me that as you were crisscrossing the border between no the north and south of Ireland, you had a really, I got a really strong sense reading it, of you kind of reflecting on your own experience as a citizen of Ireland and feeling very different ways of connection and disconnection with the people you were meeting. Well, look, what happened was a, what happened was a disaster. And the market left, I mean, what happened in the Troubles, the, 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 the idea of using violence to affect political change and, and the levels of cruelty. So I was walking through this landscape, which half the time was the best place I'd ever been in my life. The pub life, the party life, the musical life, the general life in people's eyes. On the other hand, you could walk into a house and hear the most horrific story. And um, I think it affects your novels more than it does my novels, Pat. Mm. The, the, the extraordinary chaos of that where on one hand people are singing songs and laughing and the next hand someone has driven a if van. My, if my memory serves me correctly, you described the landscape or the la it's pitiless at one point. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, but also at times very beautiful. Oh, yeah, all not, all no, the area no, land they, they around Lockburn. But isn't yeah. that something that you yeah. said? Yeah, that, that dichotomy between yeah. a, a bare... Which pitiless, pitiless is a very strong word. Well, there was a lot uh, of... No one knows, but, uh, but even... even well, there I'm was. not disagreeing with it. I'm not disagreeing with it. But it's, a, it's something that, that I would have to square, and it's in the work of Eugene McKay, but it's, it's something that's not replicated further south. No, it, it was um, a foreign country for me. Mm. I was walking through a foreign country, um, that borderland. All of the things they were doing had, had not... I was, an, I was a complete outsider. I felt like an outsider. And the stories I was being told were, were being told to an outsider. In other words, there, I, I learned nothing about smuggling, for example. It was going on in front of my nose. I didn't even see it all the time. Mm. Um, just to take one thing, smuggling. But the, the, but the conflict itself struck me. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. I, I, I didn't have those hatreds. I, I didn't bear them, and, and, uh, and I was appalled by them. Mm. Uh, gentleman over there, <coughs> to keep your hand up, sir. Oh, <laughs> somebody's got to move. Thank you. Perhaps the biggest um, returned emigrant was Kennedy, who came uh, to Ireland, I think, in the summer before he died. And uh, my parents had Kennedy and John the Twenty-Third above the mantelpiece, uh, as if there was in the sixties a new Holy Roman Empire coming. Do you think your fictions are attempts to um, remember the the kind of perhaps changes that came in with Lamas's Ireland and? Uh, well, then in the 70s, when it changed again. It's a, sort of recruiting parables, as it a were, metaphor, like the, what you say, what Carl was saying about the light and the dark coexisting in that landscape. I remember the euphoria surrounding it, but my mother bought that famous uh, photograph of Jackie Onassis in the roll neck velvet dress, smiling out like the First Lady. And we basked in the reflected glow of that for about a year, a couple of years, and then she went off with Onassis, and she turned it to the wall and said, That fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, and I saw Kennedy in that summer. Um, I saw Kennedy in that summer of 63, and it was astonishing. I, I, I've learned since that it might have been some disease he had, but he was the first suntanned person I'd ever seen. And he was the, <laughs> you know another thing? What? He was the first, he got rid of the hat. People wore hats up to that, but John Ke had such a yeah. full head of hair. But he, but he came around the corner, and it was a, that deep brown, I mean, Irish people just go red, peel, and then go white again. <laughs> And also, Irish mm. people had never been, you know, they didn't have uh, continental holidays in those years. Like this was a pure piece of technicolour glamour as he came oh, around yeah, the corner. Yeah. 
I mean, I was, I was eight, but I was in love. And, um, John F. Kennedy uh, and the President. Uh, um, but, but, I mean, I think you're absolutely right as well that, that um, those changes that came um, with um, the 60s, with the, with the arrival of uh, paperback books, with the arrival of pop music, with the, with the arrival of a certain sort of glamour, the showband period, that that changed and they could never put it back again despite their efforts to do so in, in, in certain ways. The country went wild, and, um, but certain, every time you say something like that, the opposite is also true, the country also remained very stable. And you got that mixture constantly of people living very stable lives, but, but that America had washed in over it. So if you're driving across Ireland now, and the, the clearest channel you can get on your radio is an Irish country music station, which plays you know, American country music. Irish people, uh, including many of your characters, love American country music, and, and they believe it. It's not just, they don't think well, it's I funny. Love, I love they think it's true. true. I, I know, yeah. Sorry, I, 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 was, I, I didn't want to say that. I thought that you might want to. It's all right, I can handle it. <laughs> I can handle it. Suppose you're more for the shoe producer. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, no, suddenly everyone wants to ask a question. It's there's one man back there. There's one man back there. Yeah, what about you, sir, over there in the back row, and then that'll be it. Now, where's the microphone? Now, here it comes. Oh, then we must get. There's one being sneaked into him j just there. Look. Yes. Oh, well done. Well done, Mark. Thank you, sir. Yes. Do you hear me? Yeah. No, come, come on. Speak up. Here comes the real thing. Hi. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask Colm how he goes from downtown uh, Enniscorthy to downtown uh, Buenos Aires. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I, I was. Um, I was working as a journalist, and I covered the trial of the generals um, in Buenos Aires. And I, sp I speak Spanish, so I could follow the trial and all that. And um, at night, I would walk from the courthouse down to the railway station. And, the, 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 and I was hearing the most appalling stories about torture, because all the, all the people who'd survived the detention camps came to give evidence. And, uh, but you would walk down to these empty streets of Buenos Aires. And um, uh, so um, just in a flash, once, the novel came to me that sort of um, funny aftermath, because it was the aftermath of people, and you kept meeting people who said, I saw no one. I saw, I knew no one who disappeared. Um, no one I knew got involved in anything like that. And yet, they were all around, there were bodies left all around, and it was happening in front of everyone's noses. So I became interested in that issue of denial. And um, I mean, I wrote the book down, and, and um, about, again, a very few streets, um, the inside of an apartment, and the inside of a certain psychology. Um, but, uh, and, and it was a relief because uh, uh, the previous book had been all about Enniscorthy, and I just thought, God, if I go on about Enniscorthy anymore, people would get really fed up. <laughs> and, you know, I thought Buenos Aires at least was far away or something, you know. So that's how that happened. Good. I mean, it was more or less just trying to shut myself up going on about Enniscorthy. So if you have any ideas for a book after this one, <laughs> uh, please let so, me know. If, ladies and gentlemen, any ideas for books for either of our authors or qu further questions, then do come next door in the bookshop, which is out that door, turn right and right again, where the chaps will be signing copies of their books. I should also be asked to be pointed out by the management that the Spiegel Tent Bar will be open for further discussion, no doubt, about some of the issues we've raised today. Well, of course, the Irish have coined the phrase, the crack, and I can't think of better crack than the one we've had tonight with our guests, Colm Tobin and Patrick McGay. <laughs> <laughs>